0: I think we were very well positioned to keep our doors open because some of the things that we've implemented as a result of human-centered design, uh, again, account for the range of circumstances people are in. And it just turns out that many more people are in those circumstances right now. Right.
1: Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented
2: Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: And I'm sure you can all tell once again we are doing our podcast distanced from each other due to the pandemic. Uh, So rest assured we're all staying safe and well in our own homes. And we hope Um, you are too. Yes, absolutely. We just want to start by saying how blown away we are by the response to our previous episode, the Jordan Furlong, which as of just a few minutes ago has uh, 5,300 listens, which is unprecedented for us. It beats out our next most popular episode by a few thousand. So we're delighted. Uh, yes. We hope this means we have a whole bunch of new listeners. And we want to take the opportunity to encourage everyone to go on to iTunes and leave a rating and a review if you're so inclined for us, because that really, really helps in kind of bumping up our position on iTunes and making us more findable. Um, and we want to encourage you to subscribe, because that would be awesome. So you can subscribe on iTunes, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, and you can, of course, find us on whatever uh, podcast app you might be using. So thank you for that incredible response to our previous episode.
2: And Um, we have another great episode today with another wonderful guest. Yes, I'm Our friend Shannon Salter, who is the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia, has been since 2014. And as you're going to find out in this podcast, you may already know, the Civil Resolution Tribunal is Canada's first completely online tribunal. Uh, and one of the very first in the world. So Shannon uh, came into this uh, work from um, from law school in British Columbia. She went to UBC Law, where she is now an adjunct professor, teaches administrative law. She clerked at the BC Supreme Court before going into practice and has always had a focus on tribunal work and administrative law. And this brought her to the CRT in July 2014. So I reached Shannon in her home in British Columbia a couple of weeks ago, and we have, I think, a great conversation for you now. Hello, Shannon. Hi, Dewey. How's British Columbia doing this morning? It is foggy and a little drizzly, so about normal. How about you? <laughs> well, we actually have sunshine today, which, uh, in the midst of all the chaos that's surrounding us, all it's, it's very nice to see the sun. I have to say. So, Shannon, I'm really happy that you're taking this time to talk to me today because you're one of the very few people within our business at the moment who, for whom, business is generally as normal, and uh, you know we're going to get to that because since. July 2014, you have been the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which we'll call the CRT through our conversation, I think. And just for our listeners who don't otherwise know, this is Canada's first online tribunal and one of the first in the world. The CRT currently, um, its scope is to resolve condominium, small claims disputes, and motor vehicle claims of up to $50,000. And What's really unique about the CRT is that it adopts this model of supporting people to make agreements, collaborative decision-making, using online tools wherever possible, and finding decisions only when people can't agree. So could you start our conversation, Shannon, by talking about the benefits this model has? The biggest one is that we were handed both the blessing and the curse of
0: a blank slate when we were implementing the tribunal. There was a statutory framework, but it was pretty loose. And uh, so what we did was to look out there and see what the courts were doing, see what the evidence suggested best practice was. We didn't find a whole lot of data to support the way that courts are operating currently in the civil justice system. Um, and that gave us the the blessing part of the point slate, which is that we were able to go out there and use human-centered design to talk to people who use the justice system prioritize people who have real difficulty accessing the justice system for a variety of different reasons, and model everything that we design around their needs. So where that leads you to is a number of outcomes. We get a lot of attention for being online, but that's an outcome. That's not the, the reason for being. Um, be, that's an outcome of doing the careful, human-centered Of, of talking to it.
2: people about what they wanted.
0: Exactly, and yeah. uh, and so what do people want today? Well, the vast majority of people conduct their lives online. They they do their banking online, they um, talk to their, their kids in far-flung places online, they use social media, and so that informed a lot of the, the way that we deliver services, but we also know there's other people who are offline, and so we offer choices, so people can use mail or telephone or even
2: in-person service, Right, that's still an um, option for them.
0: Exactly, and mm-hmm. as a, as part of the public justice system, those options aren't going anywhere. This has to work for everyone. We're we're not like a startup that can just pick a market segment. This has to work for everybody. And so uh, so online services are a big part of that, but there are offline services. And then a lot of stuff that has nothing really to do with technology at all. You mentioned focusing on collaborative dispute resolution. Yes. And the reason that's important is they tend to adhere to their side of the bargain more. It tends to be less expensive and take less time. It's less stressful. And yeah. all of these things are good for people. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of different ways that we do things that are are not really tech-based, but really are, are a facet of understanding what people are looking for and what their needs are and trying to account for the variety of circumstances people find themselves in. Well, let me,
2: let me ask you a little bit more about that collaborative um, making agreement piece of this, because of course, we've had research now for 20 odd years that shows just what you said, Shannon, that when people are part of making an agreement, they tend to keep it because they are invested in that agreement. Can you talk a little bit more about the ways in which people are encouraged to try to resolve these condos, small claims, disputes through the, the tools that you offer them? Absolutely. So the first
0: step is that we want people to ideally resolve their dispute without even coming to us. And so the first stage is something called the solution explorer, which is basically just a simple question and answer system to give people plain language a grade six reading level pieces of legal information about their mm. problem, which they may not even see as a legal problem yet. It's just a problem. Right. Um, and then also some tools like letters that they can send to a neighbor or to their condo board or to an insurer uh, to try and resolve the dispute themselves. And then it's only if that doesn't work that they apply for a dispute resolution with the CRT. At that point, we email them encouraging them to start talking to each other through a negotiation platform. We encourage them to do that by offering to refund their application fee if they reach an agreement. Overall, about 10% of the disputes that we see do negotiate, reach a resolution through negotiation, which is great because it's zero cost to to those folks. It, at this point, doesn't require any staff time. And this is most successful where, you know, I've lent you money. I know you owe the money. You know you owe the money, but you can't pay Right. right now. And so we need to work out a repayment plan. Um, And so that's great because it means that people can move on with their lives. Most of the time, though, somebody with a problem that's gotten this far and needs help. And that's where one of our staff mediators will step in and help people resolve their dispute by agreement. Um, And they do that remotely. So they'll engage through email or through our web portal or or even through telephone or video conferencing sometimes. And it's really driven by what the parties prefer. But the key is that people can't skip over that process. It is mandatory. You don't have to agree that part's not mandatory, but it is mandatory to to participate. Yes, you have to come to the process in good faith and participate. Um, And it's surprising. A lot of folks who think that they could never solve their dispute, they're so entrenched, it's maybe a condo dispute that's been going on for years, you know, there's no point in mediating. A lot of those cases actually settle,
2: surprisingly. Mm -hmm.
0: So, By the time a case goes to adjudication, we've tried everything else, and it's at that point that we
2: need to make a decision based on the law and uh, and strictly on legal principles. So your website at the moment, Shannon, unlike other courts around the country, carries the following message about COVID-19. The CRT remains open and fully operational. So, you know, you must be feeling pretty good about that. I am feeling very relieved. Um, I think we were very well positioned to
0: keep our doors open because some of the things that we've implemented as a result of human-centered design, uh, again, account for the range of circumstances people are in. And it just turns out that many more people are in those circumstances right now. Right. So what I mean by that is that, yeah, if you design processes for people who are suffering economically, who find themselves with a low income now, who are… Housebound, as many people with disabilities are, uh, who are at home with their children and don't have childcare, uh, people who are experiencing employment or housing legal issues and other circumstances, where well, the CRT is already designed to, them, to meet the needs of those folks.
2: Yeah, because they can't employers. go running down to the courthouse so easily. Exactly. Exactly. So that combined
0: with having a distributed workforce, we have a 100 staff and tribunal members. Before COVID-19, about 70% of them were already working remotely. And about a month and a half ago, seeing this on the horizon, we moved to make sure that the others were working remotely as well. And that's allowed us to keep our doors open as well. well and the great really thing about smart. that is that, well, we're not spending all of our time right now scrambling to figure out just how to provide basic services. Yes. Instead, when I meet daily with my team for a COVID-19 stand-up, 100% of our focus is making sure that we're anticipating now how parties who are affected by COVID-19 can be helped. Mm. So we've mm-hmm. implemented things like kind of very easy ways to extend your timeline you know extend your timeline to May fifteenth at least. We're pressing pause. We're not issuing any default orders right now because we don't right. want people to be on the receiving end of those. We're taking an even more generous approach to our fee waiver process, which is already dead simple to use so we're we're really focused on the needs of the parties, and that's a good position
2: to be in because you know they're the ones who are really suffering, obviously right now. Now, I want to talk in a moment a bit more with you about your human-centric, your user-centric model, because I think that's something that, you know, is really becoming a little bit of a theme. Actually, this podcast season, we've had a number of other guests talking about it, too. But I want to, first of all, um, bring up one of the things that I think could be described as a bump in the road, um, because there have been some pushbacks against what you've been doing In BC, and in particular, I remember the reaction of the BC Bar back in 2013 when the tribunal legislation was first published. And it was clear that the general rule, um, there are obviously exceptions to this, but the, the general rule is that parties will represent themselves without lawyers. And to say there was a bit of a backlash would be possibly an understatement. So, could you say something about why you? have that as your general rule and whether or not this continues to be something that you debate a lot with lawyers in BC. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll start by saying that it's a statutory provision. So in that regard, it's not really for me to have an opinion about it. It's the direction from the legislature, but that's very diplomatically
2: that, put. Um,
0: <laughs> well, it's not going to stop me. I'm not going to stop there. though. But to be, to be clear that this is a legislative direction that we, um, That we operate under, but it applies to small claims and condominium disputes. And there's exceptions, as you mentioned, for Mm. people who are children or have impaired capacity. We also have discretion to waive that requirement on a case-by-case basis. And you're absolutely right. This was a real point of contention for the legal community. I was appointed in 2014 after the legislation was passed, and it's something that I would hear in every meeting of lawyers. In fact, I would Mm. say it preoccupied the lawyers. It was the main focus of attention. And for me, what became clear from that is that it also indicated to me this yawning chasm between what lawyers' perception was of what the public wanted and then what I would hear from the public about what they wanted. And so, for example, in the same day, I could be doing a, a meeting of a, a section of, of lawyers who, who worked in a particular area, and they'd be very focused on this provision. And then in the evening, I'd be doing a town hall meeting with strata or condominium owners two or three hundred of them in a community center. And in reaction to the same piece of information about self-representation, uh, the lawyers would be quite incensed, but the members of the public would be relieved. Like you could be just palpable <laughs> sigh of relief because it the would two never wolves. occur to them. Yeah, yeah, it would never occur to them that they would go out and hire a lawyer for their condominium problem. Uh, but they were very afraid of being up against the lawyer, of feeling that they would feel stupid or outgunned or all of these things. And so... I think, um, to me, that was a really crystallizing moment about how you can't, as a legal professional, we're a bit insulated a bit from what people actually want. And oftentimes what they want is not a lawyer, but as Richard Susskind is saying, the outcomes that lawyers in the justice system can bring done well. So we don't actually get a lot of requests for representation from individuals Mm-hmm. And uh, wh- where members of the public now, four years into our operations, get upset about that provision is when we exercise our discretion to allow the other side to have a lawyer. That tends to be where we get most of the complaints. But you know, for motor vehicle people
2: can. Do you so find that the bar has stopped feeling so preoccupied by this? I'm just curious about whether that's changed over time.
0: I definitely hear less about it over time and I, I think it is worth pointing out that, you know, low value condominium disputes and low value small claims disputes are not work that lawyers were mostly away. Exactly. Um and it was an area where people were really struggled to resolve their dispute on their own through the courts because of this lack of accessible yes. representation. But I think prescient lawyers saw that if this worked well for condominium disputes and for small claims disputes, then what would be next? Next right. would be the areas where lawyers do um, earn a good living and, and do a lot of work. And, of course, that's exactly what happened the expansion into motor vehicle personal injury disputes, where, right. incidentally, people can have a lawyer as of right, yes. given the significant interest there. Uh, We don't yet know how many people will come to the CRT with representation, given that it's, you know, again, written at a grade six reading level, you can do the whole thing from your smartphone on your couch up to and including getting your
2: court order, and and we try to make it really step by step. So this brings us back to the user-centered design model, because what you're describing here, which I've certainly seen in my own work, is, you know, this chasm between what the legal profession um, think would be what people would want and what people do actually want. And and I, I was very struck by something that Jordan and Furlong said um, in the podcast that we just put out with him about running into you and you saying that the real challenge here is not just to replicate the CRT model. The real challenge is to continue to use user-based, human-centric design to find the best models each situation, in other words, a system that gets designed by people who use it rather than the people who are paid to resolve disputes or transact decisions within it, and you know this is what we constantly see tension between, so could you talk a little bit, Shannon, about how you have made the design of the tribunal user centric human centric, and what you think this might mean for other parts of the justice system
0: sure and I'll start by saying that user-centered or human-centered design was not a concept I was familiar with when I was appointed. Um, And I don't think it's one we've been used, although it's becoming, thankfully, I think, much more uh, ubiquitous. But we did start from the idea that if you were going to design a quarter of the justice system fresh today, you would ideally base it on empirical evidence um, and about outcomes and and what people need, and also people's own experience. So we tried to approach that with I think, an appropriate amount of humility to say that the lawyers and the IT professionals, we're experts in how technology works and we're experts in in what the law requires, but the people who have to navigate the justice system are experts in their own lives and their own lived realities, and Mm. they need to be centered. It's our job to take those experiences, that bundle of challenges and skills and limitations and geography and everything else, and uh, translate that into a process that can also meet the legal requirements. But, but, you know, having lawyers and IT professionals in a room together speculating about what the public needs is very dangerous and always wrong, in my experience. <laughs> and so we only did that a couple of times before bitter. we realized that
2: you're yeah, like,
0: no, um, you're, you're going to fail hard and you're going to aggravate and alienate people. Similarly, designing a system that you to yourself, well, let's test with the lawyers and then we can just scale it up or down to account for other people's needs is also going to lead to failure mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. will result in what we have now. That's what we're doing now. We have a system that has been designed for lawyers and judges and we try around
2: the edges to scale it up or down to meet different people's needs and it's
0: it but the people work. whose
2: opinions we ask on those changes are always people who are inside the system and familiar with it, not the people who are outside looking in. Yeah.
0: And I also query how much you can tinker around the edge. I think what's required is a wholesale reimagining. It has to work for the most vulnerable first. Right. And then everyday people. And if it, if you can capture that, it will work for lawyers. It's, it, it's fine. <laughs> It'll work fine for lawyers. It may be not their preferred way of doing things, but... But it, it, um, it fundamentally has to work for people. And so where that leads you to are mm. some, of the, some of the things advocates have told us are, uh, can you make sure that your staff are trained in mental health issues? Can you make sure that they are culturally competent? Can you make sure there's a phone number of somebody I can talk to if yes. a client of mine is falling through the cracks? Um, can you offer free telephone interpretation? Can you make your fee waiver for my low-income client? Uh, a matter of a few clicks of a button without documents. It's a million little things. It leads you to a million outcomes, but it doesn't lead you necessarily to a CRT or to a technology solution. That, that may be an outcome. It can't be the fundamental mm-hmm. thing. And I think that, sorry to go, go off on our about this, but I think we've reached a point where courts accept that technology should be involved. But what I see a lot of jurisdictions doing is say, well, we have e-filing, we have e-discovery, we have an online form, therefore we've checked that box. Well, of course, that's tempting because it codifies Mm -hmm. what you're already doing. Um, It's much harder to do the cultural work of saying, it's not about us
2: anymore. It's going to be about having to account for those people in line outside the registry right now. Right. And build it from the bottom up. Don't just build on top of what we've already got. You can
0: do that by creating essentially a coalition of the willing and able within an existing institution um, without displacing everybody who is pretty invested in, in the way they've done things previously. There is a way forward, um, but it it does require that really foundational, difficult cultural change.
2: And this is an opportunity, perhaps, for that change. I mean, that's what we're hearing from people a lot at the moment, things that even those who are invested in it being a particular way. Now, you and I do share something in common, which is that our kids have, I know this because I read a story about you to this effect have often complained about how boring we are. Um, I'm not sure that people listening to this podcast are going to immediately think of you and I as boring people, but we know that our kids often think we're boring and they think we're boring because we talk about our work all the time. And I love her story about your daughter, who was then six, complaining, tribunal, 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 enough about the tribunal already. And, you know, I can certainly substitute a few words for tribunal, and I've heard very similar complaints. So (laughs) if we're boring, it's because I think you're passionate about this, Shannon. So where does that passion come from? And what happens on the not so good days? Because we know that sometimes, you know, for system disruptors like you, there are definitely not so good days too.
0: Yeah, that that's absolutely true. And I have to admit, I, I think, um, when I, around four years ago, when my daughter was six and I was, this was just getting off the ground, it just was so all consuming and I was very much in love with it. I, I, I think is one way to put it. And uh, as, as we do when we're in love, we we, we get the mansionitis and we talk too much about our beloved. And so um, I still love the tribunal, but I, I've, I've developed a little bit more social acumen and I know when I know when to give just the elevator speech of 30 seconds when somebody asks what I do and not to go on at length until their eyes glaze over, including my kids, thankfully. But um, it is a gift to to feel so passionate about what you're doing and It is is a blessing, and I remind myself about that on days where it is extraordinarily frustrating. Um, I I have a lot of patience for the natural frustration that can come from just the challenge of having to design around people's needs. I think that that is a gift to be able to to do that. It's a privilege to be entrusted with that. Where I find um, I'm less patient is when faced with um, self-interest, a lack of curiosity, a lack of humility. Whenever I do get a bit frustrated, um, I uh, two things console me. One, I have an incredibly good team. They're all really pa- equally passionate about what they do, and they come with great ideas. And they're always a source of of support and um, and creativity. And they they challenge me, and they challenge each other, and they push us forward. And I am so deeply grateful for that. And then secondly, I also sometimes give myself a a virtual slap in the face and say look you're just you're lucky to do this you're lucky to wake up every day and be able to do this and so the frustration comes with that it's also built into the opportunity and so even on the worst work day
2: I would pick doing this
0: well I think that the
2: legal community and also the users of legal services are uh, are very lucky to have you Shannon so thank you very much indeed for this conversation today. Well, you know, right
0: back at you, Julie, and thank you so much for the opportunity. And and take care, and I hope everyone over there is staying safe and healthy. You too. Bye now. Bye.
1: So I just want to start by noting, as uh, you mentioned. To Shannon in your conversation that the CRT is currently open and fully functional right now which is something that other courts in the country cannot say.
2: That's right Um, the the only website I've been on in the last couple of weeks of intensively scanning all of the court (laughs) websites for information about their closures it's the only one that says it's fully operational and open for business. That's so great. So, of course,
1: there were multiple things in this conversation that, that struck me and uh, and were so interesting. And one of the first things, and this is one of the, the early things that you talked about with her, was the fact that the CRT is so data-driven and that's, you know, the basis of everything. And I know, um, you know, certainly from your conversation with her, but also hearing Shannon talk about the CRT and other circumstances and reading about it, um, how much user testing They do. And they did so much, you know, before it launched and they continue to do it. They never rest on their laurels. They don't consider it done and over with. They continually, um,
2: you know, request that feedback and, and make changes to make it better. And that's so great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a model of the way that we should be doing program evaluation, and, and I should add that, you know, they have sometimes come to us and we've been able to provide them with SRLs from our database right. who are always willing to do user testing on any kinds of new programs or innovations and to give feedback. And, you know, we have had it historically in the legal system. Such a hard time, first of all, even accepting that we needed to evaluate anything. I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but really 20 years ago when I first started to do program evaluation in those days of mediation programs, this was still a relatively new concept for the legal system. But what Shannon has done at the CIT is to, as you say, Dana, take it to a whole new level. It's, it's, It's continuous. It's ongoing. And she is acknowledging by doing that that... We can always learn more, and we can always improve. And even more so, the
1: you know the other big things that struck me about what she was talking about was when she spoke about approaching the design process with humility, and yes. how that has been yes. so important to them. And I loved, you know, even more than that, that she talked about how they made mistakes in the beginning, and they kind of, you know, mm-hmm. learned to to continually have that humility and to go back. And I love that she's not ashamed or afraid to talk about the fact that they made some mistakes, and they struggled, because of course, they would, anyone would in designing anything like this. Um, and they weren't afraid of those mistakes. And they weren't afraid of recognizing that those were errors and going back and, and trying again. And I think that That humility and that willingness to admit your mistakes is a huge reason for why the CRT has been so successful.
2: And, you know, I hope that we're going to take some of that spirit into the, dare I say, post pandemic era, you know, the aftermath of what's been happening in the last month or so, because we've seen and we are seeing all kinds of new experimentation in the courts, uh, you know, not not quite to the level that the CIT has honed it, but we're seeing lots of things that are new and lots of ways in which there are efforts to change to enable some kind of functioning remotely. And I just hope that we can bring that same spirit of humility, that we can learn from this, that this is in many cases virtually the first time uh, that some courts have really um, expanded extended this kind of facility and of course we're not going to get it right the first time but we can learn from it hopefully and continue to improve it
1: exactly and uh, again as she talks about the way to look at this and you know and i think this also kind of ties into the the uh, humility thing is that they've learned that the most practical thing here is to make the system work for the most vulnerable users yeah and then yeah, they find that it subsequently works for everyone else, including lawyers. Go yeah, figure.
2: Yeah, I love that too. I mean, it's, it's, it's really like a complete inversion. Of our usual mm. design process, our usual design process uh, is to put a bunch of lawyers and judges in a room and design something, or maybe mm-hmm. to, you know, to sort of come up with some modification of something that already exists. And as as Shannon says, and certainly this has been my experience, you know, that is definitely not what you want to do. If you can make it work for people who are unfamiliar with the system, who are anxious, nervous, invested, if you can make something work for those folks and in supports for them, then sure as heck it's going to work for the people who are qualified and privileged and comfortable with the system. Right. And, you know, just to
1: kind of sum up here, uh, I think that this goes through all of the things that you talked about. Again, one of the, the sentences that really stood out to me in, in um, your conversation with Shannon was when she talked about how, you know, what doesn't really make a great deal of difference in the end is what we tend to see in terms of attempted improvements to the justice system, which is that tinkering around the edges and kind Mm. of trying, you know, around the edges and a little bit to bring in users and, and make some differences when what is really needed and what has been successful with the CRT is to
2: kind of you know, blow the
1: whole thing up and, and redesign Build it and from the ground up. up. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And, you know, I mean, without in any way wanting to, you know, to, to criticize the efforts that are being made at the moment in courts mm. all around the country to implement new technologies that can enable some functioning still to take place remotely. Um, I think that we have to recognize that the justice system has been caught completely flat-footed by the pandemic um, because we didn't have means to try to accommodate people um, who couldn't be physically present. And, you know, there's a lesson there as well. Mm. And finally, I just want to add one more point, Dana, by Mike, Mm. which is that Shannon Salter is one of the least boring people I have
3: ever met <laughs> Indeed. in other news, welcome back to the, in other news segment of jumping off the ivory tower for any new listeners. This segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. We're hoping you're all doing as well as you can be during this time. For our first update, we wanted to note some of the updated resources that the NSRLP has been working on to assist SRLs during the pandemic. We have a number of different resources that are worth bookmarking. First is our page noting all the court closure updates from across the country. We are continuously updating this page as information becomes available and are focusing on how updates impact SRLs in particular. We've also been updating a separate page with details about protocols for affidavits and notarizing generally from across the country. Different provinces and levels of court have made announcements about affidavits in light of the directive to participate in physical distancing. We've compiled this information in one place for your convenience. For any parents who have access arrangements or support orders in place, we've crafted some template clauses on social distancing undertakings that could be modified and used by co-parents during the pandemic. As part of this, we also had a complete model parenting agreement written by Hannah DeJong, a family lawyer from Vancouver, which again, you can propose to the other co-parent and modify. NSRLP has also hosted some webinars by Julie and Aisha Amjad of Amjad Law Office. The webinars review the current situation in the courts, including adjournments and changes in court procedures during the pandemic, including filing, deadlines, and time periods, and affidavits. They also discuss cases being decided around what is urgent, how to bring an application for an urgent matter, and what the hurdles might be. These webinars were recorded and available on our website. In addition to providing you compilations of information that we've sourced ourselves, an SRLP has also created a page listing provincial legal helplines and COVID 19 resources and supports for SRLs. In this way, We're hoping to both provide you information ourselves and make it easier for you to access the information you need. Lastly, as we promised in our previous episode of the podcast, we've compiled a full list of access to justice and social justice themed entertainment. We've listed books, movies, documentaries, podcasts, and more for those of you engaging in physical distancing and have some free time. All of these resources are available under the news tab of our website under the COVID-19 resources subheading. Most of the other news stories about access to justice that have been written since the last episode also involve COVID-19. There's been a lot of discussion for legal innovation and the future of both the legal profession and the justice system. In particular, we wanted to highlight three news stories that are worth reading on this subject. First was our own piece published on slaw.ca, comparing society's responses to the COVID-19 pandemic versus the access to justice crisis and noting what this pandemic can teach us but improving access to justice more generally. Second was an announcement by the Ontario government regarding $1.3 million in funding for justice sector technology and a further $2.7 million in funding to support victims of domestic violence and other violent crimes while the COVID-19 pandemic persists. Third was a reflection by former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin on justice in the time of social distancing, sharing some insights on the wake-up call of COVID-19. All three of these articles are linked on our website, and we encourage all of our listeners to think about what the new normal will look like once we get through this. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation on access to justice.